Truth and Transcendence. Brought to you by Yes, You Now with Catherine Llewellyn. Truth and Transcendence, Episode 43, with special guest Michael Banks. Now, for those who don't know Michael directly, Michael is a leadership expert, a writer, a podcaster, and an executive coach. He has over 30 years' experience in coaching, training, and facilitating leaders and their teams around the globe. Michael's lifelong interest in leadership began in the UK, where he ran a community centre in Peckham in South London. In the 1980s, he was a director with the Programmes Group that you may know of. In the late 80s, Michael moved to the US, where he soon took on a senior partnership with the pioneering executive coaching firm KRW International. He spearheaded KRW, regarded at that time as the number one US executive coaching firm to the point of acquisition by a public company. Michael successfully led the coaching division of Mercer Delta Learning Center, providing leadership programs for the top 100 to 500 executives in global corporations, such as Time Warner and Novartis. And then in 2017, Michael moved back to the UK, where he is now. He's now a principal consultant with PeopleSmart, the international boutique company that provides innovative learning solutions focused on leadership and people development in the context of change and transformation. Michael is also a podcast host. He hosts the excellent People Smart podcast series, Leadership Luminaries, on which I was privileged to be a guest recently. So um, we are going uh, turn and turn about here. Michael coming on on Truth and Transcendence. Uh, Michael still coaches corporate leaders and recently designed an exciting new program with Carita Nyberg or Newberg, which is Nyberg. Nyberg, thank you, from Finland, called The Authentic Leader's Journey. A certified Genos practitioner, Michael is passionate about emotional intelligence and has been teaching EI skills since the 1980s. And God knows we can all do with enhancing our skills in emotional intelligence. His recent articles include such topics as skillful authenticity and leadership and self-awareness. Michael's brilliant and courageous autobiographical book, Got a Kidney, A Journey from Fear to Hope and Beyond, is available on Amazon. Michael enjoys music, cooking, cricket and football. He is a lifelong Crystal Palace fan, which if you're a football fan, you will know the significance of that. Um, He and his partner, Karen, live in rural Norfolk in the UK, where they love to explore the beautiful beaches with their two little terriers, Freddie and Rana. So what a life. So uh, why did I invite Michael onto Truth and Transcendence? Well, Michael has a, a wonderful gritty gravitas and a wealth of insight and pragmatic capability as a top executive coach and a business leader in his own right. Scratch the surface and we find a depth of understanding of some of the less tangible and obvious aspects of what it is to be a powerful and humane leader. Michael's unerring commitment to his own self-awareness and continuous personal growth adds a quality of sensitivity and wisdom to his perspective that is truly valuable for leaders today. So I'm especially delighted, Michael, that you were able to come and find the time to come and join us today. Thank you so much for coming on Truth and Transcendence. Wow. I think that's the best intro I've ever had, (laughs) ever. Thank you, Catherine. I'm happy to be here. You're very welcome. Um, I think think we could always do with being a little bit more um, uh, overt in our appreciation of one another, don't you think? Absolutely. I think uh, it's it's you were saying to me actually earlier on how we so often forget the achievements and our skills and our talents that we've actually exhibited over the years. Mm. Um it's good to be reminded of them. In mm. fact, when you were reading out 
well, not reading, but uh, sharing with the audience your experience of me, I thought, wow, yeah, it's true. That is me. But I don't necessarily think of myself that way. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. thank you. Very welcome. And uh, thanks again for, for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. So um, just to remind everybody, including myself, of the theme of the month, which is big ideas, which, which um, actually is a, it's a real theme that's unfolding in the telly. You know, everyone who's been on talking about it has come at it from a completely different angle. And I'm sure we will again today. And how, how I came to this theme was I, I just noticed that in my own life, there are a number of ideas that have become, for me, big ideas with a capital B and a capital I, and that have been transformative and significant for me in one way or another. I've also noticed exactly the same thing when I've been working with clients, that for, for those people, certain ideas have just resonated for them and have been transformative for them. And then thirdly, there's been really noticing how our relationship with big ideas is important in and of itself, almost regardless of which big ideas we're thinking about. So there's a number of levels for this. And I think that's why I'm particularly delighted to have several different people come and talk about big ideas from different angles. So, Michael, we've, we've talked about this and um, talked about big ideas a little bit. And um, I was wondering if you'd like to share with our listeners, can you remember the first time that you really connected with what we might call a big idea that was significant for you and that actually then held an important place for you in your life? Yes. Simple answer. <laughs> um, when I was 13, I want to say 13, I think it was, mm. um, I was at an English boarding school in the middle of Kent in a little village out in the sticks. And I was standing in the junior common room at lunchtime. All the other boys had disappeared. There were only boys, of course, mm. in those days. Um, single sex school. And uh, I was standing in the middle of the common room and I was, there was tears running down my face and I was so angry. I was absolutely furious. I mean, I was livid because I was so incensed by the cruelty of what went on in that boarding school with the boys bullying, teasing, in an environment where basically you were you were isolated from your family, from anything that was co any comfortable structure in your life, mm. left to fend for yourself. Um, and I remember saying out loud to myself, out loud several times, it doesn't have to be like this. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like this. And so it, in a way, it's sort of, it might not sound like a big idea because it's not a new idea, but for me at that moment, it was life-changing because it set me on a path, on a journey. It literally was the foundation of my purpose in life, which was to, to make things better, you know, yeah. better in the world. And uh, so as a result of that moment, you could call it a waking up, a re realization. Um, the rest of my life panned out accordingly, a journey to make things better. And I'm still, I'm still on a journey, except that um, my perspective on how to do that has changed a bit. Yeah. How, how is your perspective? I think that is a big idea, Michael. It doesn't have to be this way because it's all too easy just to think, well, actually, it does have to be this way. There's nothing I can do about it. It's if, true. Especially if I'm only 13. Yes. You know, and feeling completely disempowered. Yeah. So that is a powerful idea. Well, it speaks to, the, to what we're experiencing at the moment as well, which is I think it was the uh, head of the United Nations yesterday said it – it's almost almost unbelievable that this is happening in the 21st century in Ukraine. 
this war. It's anachronistic. Mm. No, wars should be redundant. It shouldn't be happening anymore. Why is it that human beings do this? So I think there's a connection there between that question of why this inhumanity is occurring, mm. connection with the importance of going on one's own journey towards becoming spiritually fulfilled, yeah, fulfilling your potential, your highest potential, not your lowest potential, not your ability to control and and uh, you know to 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 fuel your greed. Mm, mm. Um, and so that so I really think that when I said uh, it doesn't have to be like this, what that meant was that I had to work on myself yeah. in order to be a leader in whatever walk of life that was attempting to raise the level of consciousness and um, more than anything, uh, open the heart to love. And I, I really mean that, open the heart to love, because I think going back to the insanity of what we're seeing now and the insanity of that English boarding school. Mm. I was thinking about it. Why? How, how was it that adults put the, put the children, these boys, through such a horrific experience? Yeah. Didn't they know better? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to take me away from my family, who for that first term when I was 11, 50 miles away, I was told you won't be seeing your family for the whole term, which is like 10 weeks. Yeah. An 11-year-old standing in a, a little room on his own, bawling his eyes out because he wouldn't see his mother and father again for two and a half months. Yeah. Oh, but it gives you a backbone. <laughs> it's bonkers. Yeah. So, so, um, so, so really that also is so important that that experience of it doesn't have to be like this meant that I went on a spiritual journey myself. Yeah. Become the best person I could be in order to, to have some sort of positive impact and make a difference. Yes. Yeah. So you weren't saying it doesn't have to be this way because someone's going to rescue me or because things are going to change. It was more, it doesn't have to be this way because I don't have to, allow it to remain this way it was more sounds more like a statement of responsibility it sounds like the way you're describing it yes i think i think you're right and i think it was also um it was a statement of responsibility and it was also based on a belief that i could actually do something about it yeah about this cruelty that it was possible to do something about it um and i still believe that so that's kind of, I think that's quite amazing that someone of that age in that kind of situation where you're surrounded by circumstances that really don't encourage that way of looking at it, perhaps. Um, I'm just interested in, in the fact that you did actually take that particular position around that. Uh, do you have any idea how that came to be? You know, how was it that you were able to actually come up with that idea? What was it about you or what was it about your upbringing or that, that, that brought you to a place where you could do that, do you think? It's a great question. And, and it actually, I had the same question myself as I've been thinking about our conversation today and thinking ahead of time about it. Mm. That occurred to me too. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was puzzling about it and I was going, uh, I think – what are the roots of why I was able to ask that question? Why I had that experience? Well, I don't know for sure. Was it my parents passing on in some way, whether it's through genes or whether it's through their own behavior towards me from when I was born onwards? Was it them? Was it their? Was it my parents who actually instilled in me? the importance of being kind Mm. Um, because that's what we're really talking about there. In that situation at the time, it was about kindness. Yeah. It wasn't any, there was a total absence of kindness. Mm. And that's what you were Um, railing against. Yeah, I was railing against that. And I was also, when I mentioned earlier on about uh, 
you know, you have a responsibility to go on a journey towards experience, you know, being the best person you can be. That's about love. It's about connection to the heart. Because, you know, again, to your to the, the, the other question, which is why in the first place are people so cruel to each other? Mm-hmm. I suggest that it's because at some point in their life or over time, they lose the connection with their heart. They lose the connection with love. Mm-hmm. And if you cut off your feelings and you cut off the heart connection, then you're capable of doing really horrible things. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and, and I, yeah. You know, I was saying to you earlier that uh, it wasn't until I was 25 that um, a mentor of mine in London, who we both know, Robert, sat across a, a table at a restaurant and poked his finger in my forehead and said, you've been traumatized. Mm. You don't know what a feeling is. And it's true, I didn't, because I'd suppressed it. Yeah. In order to protect myself, I'd suppress my feelings. So I'd lost that heart connection. Yes. I wasn't yes. a bad person. I wasn't evil. In fact, I was working on the, uh, in the community at the, the Adventure Playground. I was doing yeah. a lot of good. Yeah. You know, helping kids and youth, Jamaican youth in particular. And, uh, and yet, you know, still, that's the journey, I think. Yeah. That really is a journey. Reminds me of my uh, landlord in uh, the last landlord that we had in America. He was a corporate lawyer. He was a real, you know, type A, hard-bitten, hard-driven, driving corporate lawyer. Mm. Always on the go, very fast, uh, really, really totally insensitive to other people. (laughs) And uh, what was interesting about him is that he was thrown out of his house, not literally, but his wife asked him to leave, and suddenly he transformed from being this really pretty obnoxious guy into being a very open-hearted, kind person. Wow. Yes. We, and this is a man who initially, when we pointed out the black mould on the bedroom wall, said, well, you don't like it, you can go. <laughs> and yep. so, years, you know, whatever it was, seven years later when we did leave, it was almost like he was in tears and he was hugging me and everything. And uh, you know, interesting that he had an experience in his life that pulled him up short and woke him up yeah, and allowed him to access his heart that he, in a way that he hadn't before. Wow. Extraordinary. Yeah. Well, that, that probably saved his life in a way. Well, he, yeah, he passed away recently. Oh, Okay, so maybe his but last few surprised. years were a bit more satisfying. Yeah. No, 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 but he passed away because of, of the speed and the stress that he was under. Mm. Um, and so he had an aneurysm, I believe, just yeah. after we left the States. Yeah. But he still had changed. He still opened up in that way I described. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So somehow uh, when you were 13, you you really connected with this, thing of railing against the cruelty yeah and committing to being kind and making sure that people were being kind and you said that's carried all the way through your life so say a little bit more about how that's kind of evolved through because if someone listens to your life history as I communicated it here they'd think well this is a you know um uh high level hard-hitting uh, business leader and executive coach and this that and the other. There's nothing in there about love and heart and kindness and all that sort of thing. It may be implied, but it's not explicit. Mm-hmm. So, how how did that kind of evolve from that 13 year old boy standing there into who we see before us today? Oh gosh, so many iterations of unfolding, of opening up. Um. You know, I remember, well, there were, there were key moments. Um, one of them was the exegesis seminar that I did when I was 25. Yeah. Self-discovery, self-realization program. Um, the next one was when I was 32. Um, and I'd just come back from Egypt. And story short, I was in the hospital for four weeks. After two weeks, 
they said, okay, we've dealt with you now because you've had two forms of food poisoning and mm. we've blasted you with antibiotics. You'll be on the mend now. And I wasn't, and I got worse. And I ended up uh, a month in to my hospital stay with the miracle. My parents, my mother's father had a very good friend who was the top guy in the UK for all things medical. Yeah. Very top guy. They called him up in desperation. And he called the head of the hospital in London. And the head of the hospital in London turned up at 7.30 on a Sunday morning with his T-shirt still on because he'd just come from a party. <laughs> and he, and he, but this miracle that we knew, this, the, the top guy, I can't remember his name, Radcliffe, I think it was. Mm. And he, he, he knelt down by the side of my bed and said, kid, you're fucking ill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I kind of knew that. You figured that out by then. Yeah. And so... <laughs> And he, he said, "We're gonna. We don't know what's wrong with you, though. We're gonna have to operate, open you up to see if we can save you. Um, we'll be doing that at three o'clock this afternoon. So, I, in my drug-addled, uh, painkiller-addled mind, I was still able to look at my watch and go seven. Th- that's that's seven and a half hours from now. Can't you do it any sooner?" <laughs> Having said that, I was going to be dead by the end of the day. Mm. So, you know, to my mind, it was, why don't you do it now? They did it, and I ended up being a a medical mystery, one of those medical uh, miracles. Yeah, I was actually the subject of a conference of doctors all over UK who were trying to figure out why I hadn't died. Yeah. And so they, they couldn't reach consensus. So they actually said, we, we can't agree on why he didn't die. He should have been dead. You know, my, my appendix had grown into the stomach wall and formed an abscess. Both the abscess and the appendix had burst weeks before they opened me up. Should have been dead. I was completely poisoned. And um, I knew why I was still alive. And it was thanks to a guy that I work with that you know as well, Joe Pritchard from mm. Yorkshire. Mm. And Joe was a typical Yorkshireman. He didn't mince his words and he, he was very direct. And there I was in my hospital room two days before they opened me up. And he actually came into the room and instead of being all meek and mild with a bunch of flowers and all that kind of stuff, he just went straight up to me and shoved his face in my face and shouted at me. He said, are you going to die? <laughs> I looked at him and I went, just paused for me. I said, no. <laughs> I made a decision. I wasn't going to die. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Seriously, I've always been grateful to Joe Pritchard for saving my life. And it wasn't probably the only reason. It was a big part of it. Yeah. Um, anyway. That experience when I was 32, I had to go back and convalesce at my parents' place in the country. And I remember the first day I was able to walk out of the house was one step, literally one step with a walking stick, and then two steps the next day and three like that. Um, and being at home with my parents, uh, I, was, I was opened up further to being able to be loved and to love because I was so complete. That, that whole experience of being, you know, King Lear, Shakespeare's play, and it's always, I've always remembered this, act three, scene three, he's on the heath. King Lear's on the, and he looks at his, um, his colleague, the Joker, I think mm. it's the Joker, and says, uh, is man no more than this? a poor bare-forked animal, and he was yeah. naked, you know. I mean, mm. he had nothing, and I was like that. I was totally, literally naked. And uh, when you go through an experience like that, this was another uh, episode in my journey towards letting go of anything that would obstruct me from loving and being loved. Yeah. So it was about letting go. Um, of my any preciousness I had, any ego, um, and 
that's also another element, I think, of the journey is letting go, continuously letting go. Yeah. Like now, I'm facing, I'm, I think about this, letting go of life itself mm. in this body because of my age. Yeah. And because of my medical conditions. So um, just going back to your original question, um, that was when I was 32. And then there were others. So there, could, have been, so, so there have been these sort of um, seminal catalytic moments yeah. running through. Uh, but yeah. it's, it sounds like the, the core big idea that's run all the way through is, is the one about kindness and love. Yep. Receiving kindness and love and encouraging and facilitating that in others. Yeah. And the two going together. But also it sounds like you had an awareness quite early on that in order to do that, you were going to have to grow yourself. Can you remember yes. when you first had had that clear thought, in order for me to do this, I need to grow? Can you remember that? Yeah, I think so. I think it was uh I think it was when the Reverend Paul Ostriker visited the boarding school. Mm. He'd just come back from China. And I remember at the time he was it was shocking because he said, well, actually, there's some good things about China. And this was like, what? <laughs> China? Good? Anything good? Mm. You know, it's a bit like, uh, you know, someone saying, well, actually, there's some good stuff going on in Russia. Yeah. Uh, well, what, what's, what decade was this that we're talking? Um, <laughs> certainly the last century. Let yeah. me think. I'm going to go back a bit here. Um, it was the decade, uh, the end of the 60s. The end of the 60s, yeah. Yeah. And so he he was so inspiring. I was so impressed with his fundamental values and principles around life and religion and how open-minded he was. The fact mm. that he'd come back from China and, and, and see the positive stuff that was going on there, that it inspired me to get a communion. Ah. to have the Christian communion, the wafer and the, the the red wine and all that. And even though he said, well, you know, you can't do that because you haven't been baptized. baptized. I hadn't been baptized. I mm. think, yeah, I think that's it. And, um, but I'm going to let you anyway. <laughs> so I thought, oh, this is cool. <laughs> my first was one of my first achievements in doing what is not allowed or not, uh, you shouldn't be doing well. Yeah. I do those things, so yeah, uh, that's me. Um, so that for and, you was uh, an, that was for you was an expression of opening up to growing. Yeah, for sure it was, but also and also and and going on this learning journey. When I went to university, my two best friends were Indian brothers, mm-hmm. whose whose disciple was they were disciples of, um, what's his name? Their father was as well. Pondicherry, Sri Aurobindo. Mm. And for a while, I really wanted to go to Oroville in India and live there. Um, I mean, those are just a couple of examples, but um, the letting go bit is really important for me. Uh, I had to let go when I was earning a lot of money. I was still with that company you mentioned, KRW. Mm. And... um, had a huge amount of money. I could just throw it around. Beautiful big house in New York. And and anyway, the marriage fell apart that I was in. So suddenly I went from being pretty wealthy to the absolute opposite. Yeah. Um, talk about letting go of form. So, you know, I could I was so caught up in being this superstar business, young business guy who who was leading the the top company in its field in the in the US, and uh, we were about to be bought by a public company, and I was going to make even more money. And um, I had all the trappings, the, the brand new BMWs in the driveway, and you know, all all that stuff. Um, holidays in St. Bart's, yeah. And uh, I lost everything to the point where I, my next car when I got back to California was an eight hundred dollar Toyota Corolla. <laughs> which at the time was about 25 years old already. It was like yeah. a little biscuit tin that had been, that had been punched and dented. 
It was a death <laughs> trap. And actually, I bought it. The only way I could buy it was because I sold a little TV to my then girlfriend when we split up. She said, I tell you what, you need a car. I'll buy your TV for $800 and you can get a car. Brilliant. It, it, and it, but, but the degree of my poverty was the fact that one day, the true story, I'm, I'm thinking I've got to get some gas to get over the hill to where I was living by the sea. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any money to my name in the world. So I was, on, I was literally scrabbling around in the car underneath the seats to see if I could find some coins. And I found a quarter, an American quarter, which is the equivalent of oh, 20p or something, less. Mm. And I went up to the gas attendant and I said, um, can I have this? You have this, I'm going to put some gas in the car. And he said, are you sure? I said, yeah. He said, you, you, just, you just got a quarter and you want to? He couldn't believe that I was just wanting to put this tiny. I said, I've got to get home. I was that stretched. I used to go downtown to see if I could borrow $10 to put food on the table. Mm. Um, now, it's another form of letting go because I, I would drive up in my Toyota Corolla and park in downtown Mill Valley, which is the, the very rich town that we lived in. And I'd be parking in between uh, a Tesla and a Mercedes. Oh, she didn't have a Tesla then. BMW and all these luxury cars. And there I was, my little little Toyota Corolla with huge dent around the side. And, and it was, a, it was a, a, an experience of, it's okay. It's all right. So it's not prestigious. It's not a brand new BMW. It's a, a little tin can. So what? Yeah. Doesn't matter. So what, what was it that led to you leaving KRW? You said you, said you had to let go. Was there some yeah. reason why you felt that it was time to let that lifestyle go? Well, because of 9-11, um, the, we almost went out of business. Uh-huh. We, um, we had to, the partners, me and the other two, made a decision to go without salary, without income, until we could pay ourselves. We'd put the staff on a, on a reduced income, we had to lay off a number of people. Yeah. And at the same time, I moved into Manhattan into a little shoebox because I separated from my wife. She was still in the house for a whole year where I was paying the mortgage. And suddenly, like a flash, I had no income. <laughs> my expenses had doubled. Yeah. And um, suddenly my savings had gone and I had to pay for her, her move to a new house. I had to yeah, so I just basically it all disappeared. I understand, quickly. right? So, so it was it was almost like you were tipped into a, a situation where those things that you'd relied on and that were the lifestyle kind of went away. They did. They went and away, it, and, and it sounds like you um, took this as another opportunity to grow. I did, and and that particular episode was around. Okay, so picture this: there was a there was me without with hardly any social life whatsoever because I spent all my time billing clients, mm. yeah. <laughs> you know, being on the road in, in fancy hotels like the Four Seasons. Or I, and then when I wasn't, I would use m my own house as a hotel. Um, it was a two-dimensional life. Yeah, I was in a marriage that was, was killing me. Mm. I mean, I was putting a priority on making money uh, prestige, look at me, look at me. Uh, and what happened when I lost it all was that I discovered the beauty and the importance of community. Yeah. Because I had to. I arrived in Mill Valley with nothing. So I had to start somewhere. And people, and so I learned how to value friendship and community yeah. in a way that I hadn't before. And I realized I had become one of those corporate, I won't, won't, don't want to say psychopaths, because I wasn't a psychopath. No. 
but I definitely, I think I, I was missing out on the beauty of life. Yeah, yeah. In my pursuit of money and prestige. I think that, that ha- absolutely. I think that happens sometimes, doesn't it? We we connect with something really important, mm. and we continue along that line, and then for some reason we take a tangential direction yeah. and kind of lose touch with it until one day there's a sort of rude awakening. <laughs> and we come back and go, ah, I remember now. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting because one of the things that I'm really clear about is that when I started out on this path, when I was 13, on my mission in life, if you like, or purpose, um, I've discovered over time that what happens when you prioritize your well-being and your spiritual well-being and you are you know that you consciously go into into a spiritual path because essentially it is spirit in whichever way you cut it mm. and I'm not talking about religion it's a, it's a a discovery of your true self your highest self all that is best about you as a human being mm. And so that you can share and contribute, you know, it's part of the process. And what happens is you get, you know, I could have led a very safe, simple life. I've had, could have had a nine to five job, been employed, been very secure, built up money over decades. I could have, and it could have been a rather boring life for me anyway. But um, I chose to do this. And then life throws up these incredible opportunities, which are typically horrible. Mm. (laughs) You know, they involve pain. They're often catastrophic, whether it's medical or marriage or, 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 you know, bankruptcy or God knows what else. Um, These sort of things. And I'm a great believer that, you know, that you can learn so much. There's always a positive outcome. Yeah. But if you try and protect yourself from, from risk in life, you're not going to move, you're not going to grow. And in particular, we've seen that, I think, in the last two or three years with the pandemic, that, you know, you've, people, are not, people have not accepted, some people, that you've got to carry on and live life. Yeah. And life is risky. Yeah. Um, but if you don't do that, you become stunted. Mm. Mm. in your growth as a, as a spirit i believe yeah i agree and i i think sometimes it i think sometimes we can underestimate the degree of the effect uh, when we put the brakes on ourselves in some way you know we think well i'm just going to take a month and just you know absent myself from life and then we think great and then i'll just pop back into life you know um doing really well and flourishing on day 1 at the end of that month no, it's going to take six months to recover from that and get back into full flow. And that might be uncomfortable. But I, you know, I think sometimes these lessons have to happen in a sort of cycling way because then they can go into more depth than they would if you just carried on on the same tangent the whole time, don't you think? Exactly. And it's funny you mentioned that because I remember <laughs> going back to that when I was 32 that I mentioned I had that medical uh, I was a medical miracle. Yeah. But uh, when when I was first operated on, um, I remember, and during the process of you know being ill and diagnosed and all the rest of it, and I said, well, how how quickly can I get back to normal? Yeah. Because I need, I've got work to do. Do you don't realize that I just did my first public training, and this will completely mess up my career. <laughs> yes. I'm about to reach this incredible new plateau, this new level, if you like. And they said six months at least. And I went, six months? I haven't got six months. Do you realize what that's going to do to me and to my life and to my career? And I had to give up to it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. I love the way you've made that connection between kindness to oneself and to others, love, and letting go. And need the fact that we need to grow in order to be able to follow and embody all of those ideas yeah and and funny enough we need to grow um by okay another way of responding to what you just said catherine 
is, and I mentioned this to you the other day when we were chatting, when I started out, I wanted to change the world. I wanted transformation of society. Mm. That was like, yeah, it doesn't have to be like this. Yeah, we need to transform it. And, and I used to sort of try, I had this sort of idea that somehow I, I could do it. Mm. <laughs> you know, I could transform the whole world. By yourself, and you mean, like a hero. By myself. <laughs> and maybe with a few other people, but, you know. Mm, mm. Um, and I think as time has gone on, I realised more and more is that truly, I know I'm repeating myself, but letting go is the key here. Uh, letting go is also means that you, you trust the unfolding of your life. And I think you use the word trust the universe. Yeah. Um, we, we have to do that because if we try to control it and, it, and certainly if we think that we can actually change it, then we're causing ourselves a lot of problems, yeah. apart from causing other people problems as well. Exactly, yeah. It's a bit like, you know, if you want someone to change, don't try to change them, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Change how you are in relationship to them. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. I, I love this whole story. It's very, very rich and um, colourful, you know, the, the way you're describing all of this. Oh, so thank if you, you. You know, if you think about um, where we are now in the world, mm. you mentioned it, you alluded to it earlier, and I know that you're working with a, a lot of leaders of different sorts. Yeah. Um, and there are a number of challenges in the world at the moment. So <laughs> yes. what, do you, what do you think that leaders right now in your view, should really be thinking about or exploring, perhaps in relationship to some of what we've been talking about? Yeah, it's a great question, and I'd be, um, I will enjoy answering. There's various ways to look at that. Um, I think that in stark contrast to some of the world's leaders, and I don't just mean Putin, I mean th the Americans as well, Mm. the Chinese, on and on, in fact, pretty much most of them, in stark contrast to that, to that a kind of leadership, which is about power and control, yeah. a leader of organ an organization, and certainly in the business world, ideally needs to be able to trust the people, include the people, um, sincerely, involve people uh, in making the best solutions. Yeah. Um, that means that the leader, him or herself, has to do the work that we've talked about on this journey mm. to smash their own ego, ideally. I mean, you still have a strong ego, but to, be hu to have humility, yeah. to be empathetic, to be connected to the heart, to their own heart, Mm. which means that they will be connected to others' hearts so they yeah. can feel um, with empathy so they wouldn't even dream about being cruel or starting a war. Yeah. It just, they would, it was out of their reality altogether, be another planet. Yeah. So those leaders need to, um, the combination of trust, trusting themselves also. It's all very well trusting other people. But to do that, you also have to trust yourself. Yeah. And then, as I say, the empathy, the kindness. And I'm seeing examples now. I was in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago, and there was a conference that I was attending. And the first case study was fascinating. It was um, a, a, a major bank that had decided at the beginning of the pandemic they needed to transform, as many organizations have done in the past couple of years. Um, and so that involved letting go of several thousand people. Right. The CEO said to the speaker at the conference in her role, uh, take charge of this, and can we do it without any grief, without any bad press, without any conflict, without huge upset, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Two years later, they'd achieved it. And the most amazing thing is, that they actually involved everyone in the solution, including the thousands of people who were going to be got rid of. Yeah. They bought into the transformation, even though they knew they were going to be losing their own jobs. Mm. 
Wow. And because they were given the respect and the trust to, to be part of the solution versus simply being told by their corporate leader, the CEO, ever, this is what's happening. Yeah. Tough. You're, you're going. I'm sorry, but you're gone. It's amazing. I mean, to, to what, a, what an incredible transformation of approach yeah. to be able to trust. So, so to answer your question again, I mean, leaders need all of those things more than anything else. I think they need to approach their leadership with love. Wow. Well, that's a very simple idea, and it's also a very big idea. So it's one of those things where somebody could say, fantastic, great, I'll do that now. Oh, <laughs> how am I going to do that? <laughs> so, yeah, really. so if, if someone's been listening to this and um, loving everything that you've been saying and really resonating to it, uh, whether or not they understand it intellectually, but resonating to it, and they're thinking, I'd like to respond to that. I'd like to see if I can actually enhance my leadership in that way. Uh, but where do I start? What would you say to somebody who says, well, where do I begin? I know exactly where to begin. And this is a generalization, but it begins with cultivating your own self-awareness. In the emotional intelligence um, rubric, the first competency is self-awareness, whether you're Daniel Goldman or you're Genos International, Ben Palmer, Dr. Ben Palmer. Uh, In the model, whether it's four bits or six bits, the first one in all of these is self-awareness, without which... Forget it. Yeah. You, if you, you know, so it's a responsibility of the leader to do whatever they need to do to become more and more self-aware. Yeah. Because in the process of doing that, you it leads to wisdom and humility and truth. And there's so, but how? Where do you start? Well, there's so many ways in which you can do that. You can go on courses. You can read books. You can have experiences of near death. You can, God knows, I mean, there's a myriad, infinite number. But but the decision is the thing to want to become more Mm self-aware, knowing that if you do that, you'll become wiser. And then you'll be better able to lead other people. Yeah. We haven't mentioned the word wisdom. Yeah. I like to use the word wisdom uh, because I think that it's, we need wise leadership. Mm. That includes all those things we've talked about, but wise leadership wouldn't result in war, mm, yeah, or prolonged conflict between groups or people. Just wouldn't, yeah. Well, also we believe. I mean, you know, I, I think one of the um, aspects of empathy is that we can't ever really know what it's like to be in the shoes of all of these different people doing all of these different things. But in the end, we can be in our own shoes, can't we? And we can do the best we can in our own shoes. Exactly, which is, you know, you talk about you know, self-awareness and uh, we talked about control and power. You know, I've, I've coached people who, i never forget a guy at Intel, you know, the big chip yes. yeah. company, Global Chip. And uh, a really nice guy. I mean, you know, good guy. But my God, did he want to become CEO tomorrow? Mm. So in, in every meeting that he was in, he would shut people up. He would bully. He would sort of uh, wouldn't let other people get a word in edgeways. He'd put people down and so on because he wanted to be at the forefront, uh, the leader, in order to show that he could be a CEO of the company because he was two levels down. Yeah. And, and I, the best bit of coaching I ever did, I said to him, look, stop trying, stop trying. Just give it up. Let yeah. it go, for God's sake. You're pissing people off. Mm. And he, he got back to me and said, this is really weird, Michael. It's working. <laughs> I didn't say anything in the last meeting. And suddenly everyone wants me to do, to do something. In fact, they want me to lead a project. Within the yeah. team. Yeah. He said, but it's so weird because I'm not doing anything. I said, exactly. You know, <laughs> not too, I've just seen a hummingbird. Oh, a beautiful. Group. A bright red hummingbird. I didn't even know they had them in 
England. Are Sorry. you sure? Are you sure that's not a magical hummingbird that's come in as a as a um, a reward for doing this podcast episode? It could be <laughs> like one of those Indian tokens. American that's right. Indian. That just appears and then it's gone, and no one else yeah, ever sees it. I don't know. Beautiful. But, uh, yeah. So this this was this was a revelation. Mm. And if you're talking about trust as well, I mean, uh, another story that is I often repeat, which is stunning so i'm i'm in silicon valley and i'm there's this is a bio what are they called bio company bio, biotech yeah biotech and he basically ran half the company he was like general manager is in charge of all these different functions and a vietnamese guy and he 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 said to me when i was doing the analysis well the most important value that i have is trust without trust we can't go anywhere. We're mm. done. So I interviewed all the people around him, and the, the overriding theme was we can't trust him. <laughs> yeah. When he came with me, I took him away to, for a whole day to get the feedback, read it out loud verbatim. And he came in the hotel room. First thing he did was went to the window, opened it, and looked down. And then he went to the door, the side of the room, which was locked, and he tried to open it, see if it opened or not. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm just checking to see that if I do need to escape, how far down it is and you know what, what's the access points. And I put two and two together. And in my feedback to him, it's like, look, you're not in the war anymore. Yeah. You're not back in Vietnam because all his classmates got killed. They had a reunion every year for three years, starting with 50 of them. This is during the, Viet the Vietnamese War. Mm. And the final year, there was only him and one other. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he, so he was still carrying that. Still carrying it. And the point, the irony was that his, he valued trust more than anything else, but he was, they considered him untrustworthy. Yeah. But he was just, and <laughs> his behavior of like checking out the room, because he didn't trust he was going to be safe. Yeah. So his self-awareness went up a notch in realizing that he, he was no longer in the war. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He'd actually caught it. I was able to help him catch his, you know, the pattern, if you like, and the, uh, the, uh, the conditioning he'd been that had, that happened to him in his upbringing yeah. when he was younger and how that was affecting his current behavior with his people in, in his organization. Yeah. And so he changed, you know. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So, Michael, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I'm Thank sure you. really valuable for, the, for listeners listening to it when it first comes out, but also it'll just be there for people to listen to in perpetuity, which is great. So who knows who's going to listen to this? So um, we're just about to come up to running out of time. Mm -hmm. If you think back over this conversation that we've had today, yeah. What has been your favourite part of this conversation? Oh, wow. What a question. Uh, favourite part. I think, I think my favourite part is when you ask me a question that allows me to tell a story. And one of my passions as well is storytelling. Yeah. And I've actually put on storytelling events, and I've been to them as well as a participant. I did one in Holland in Zutphen. It was exquisite. There was 14 of us around a circle. And everyone had a turn up to five minutes to tell a story. Yeah. No discussion, just listening. So everyone else just listened. And the power in that was incredible. These strangers, by the end of this two hours, whatever it was, were so close and connected and touched and moved and felt connected with each other as a result of simply everyone being able to tell their story yeah. and, and to be listened to properly without interruption, without discussion. And so when you ask me that question, the favourite bit, with lots of favourite bits when you ask me questions that, so I could tell you various stories, which was great. I love that. And it brings alive to me uh, the memory because in those stories for me, Catherine, there was um, always – makes me feel good because of what I got from them, mm. those, those episodes. 
mm. what I learned from them and how I moved on and became, I think, a wiser, happier, better person as a result. As a result of all those horrible things, like almost yeah. dying or, you know, losing all my money or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, is it not a result of a combination of what happened and how you chose to respond to it? That's true, which is another point that I believe in as well, which is, the, is that there is a room, there's room for helping people. It's almost not to say a roadmap but helping people make sense of the, all the negative stuff they have to confront yeah. and go through instead of holding on to that, whether it's grief or anger or whatever, unresolved, you know, negative feelings, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, there's room to help people and facilitate them to get through those and to learn. And for, what's the meaning of this? It's not pointless. There's something of value here. Yeah. Yes. You almost died, but, but what do you get from it? And how, how <laughs> yes. does it make you a better person? <laughs> yes, yes. And that wonderful story of, of Joe Pritchard coming in with his tough love and, and confronting you and forcing you to make that choice. Yeah, because we all got choices. And that's another thing about self-awareness. Yeah. The more self-aware you are, the more able you are to make a, a variety of choices. Yeah. You see the options versus being in automatic reaction mode. Mm, mm. Brilliant. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Michael. This has been the most extraordinary. I feel like we could keep talking for hours and end. We and haven't even started to talk about Crystal Palace yet. Oh, my God. How you could I possibly that miss that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to bore you, Catherine. I, <laughs> you said to me the other day, I don't even know what that means. Yes, I do know. I've heard of Crystal Palace. But I'm I'm not a um, a football aficionado like yourself. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, where can people find you, and how would you like people to connect with you? Um, well, my email address is uh, I've actually got. I'll give you my personal email address, which is the one I access most of all. Yeah, there is a People Smart email address as well. Yeah, um, which I'll also give you because some people might be interested in what I do. In terms of my work, yeah, um, podcasts, coaching, whatever, workshops. I also do a lot of moderating of panels as well, which I love. Wonderful at conferences. Yeah. Um, so, Michael Banks. This is my personal one, and the yeah. best one to get hold of me. Michael Banks Seven. That's M I C H A E L B A N K S Seven. Not the word, but the number. Yeah. At gmail.com. And then the PeopleSmart email address is mbanks at PeopleSmart. That's one word, P-E-O-P-L-E-S-M-A-R-T dot F-R, as in France. Ah, yes. Yeah. So Brilliant. those are the two email addresses. Um, I can be found on LinkedIn. Yeah. I'm very active usually, not in the last couple of weeks, though. I'm feeling remiss on that, but normally very active on LinkedIn. I often publish articles there or I do various things. Um, LinkedIn and uh, let's see, um, phone number, is that what you normally give, give to people? It's interesting who chooses to give a phone number and who doesn't. Um, so it's entirely up to you. I mean, you can find it out anyway. So yeah, I'll give it to you. It's um, my cell phone number is zero seven four. That's a four four for UK. Yeah. Then zero seven four nine four nine one five six four six. Great. That's it. I think that's probably it. Wonderful. And I will also put a link to your book on Amazon. That'd be great. Yes. I'll, I'll put all of this in the show notes so that people can easily find you and they don't have to scrabble around looking for a pen right now. Okay. <laughs> Super. Uh, yeah. And actually, I, I'm, I use WhatsApp a lot. So if you've got my phone number, they can contact me on WhatsApp. Brilliant. That's really good to know. Yeah. Yes, that's quite handy, isn't it? If people are calling from overseas. Yes, it's free. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you Michael, can use video as well. Yeah, absolutely. Which is brilliant. And you can send each other photographs. You can do all kinds of things. So all in all. <laughs> Michael, this has been absolutely wonderful and Thank very you. interesting. And very touching, actually. 
so thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And um, I, in a minute, we'll finish recording and then we'll just chat to each other. Yeah, sure. I out. want to thank you, Catherine, as well. It's a real treat for me to be able to express myself and be on the other end of the of the uh, conversation and not be the host. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to be a guest, which is wonderful. So you, thank you for looking after me so well in this conversation. My absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Truth and Transcendence, the regular weekly podcast from Yes, You Now with Catherine Llewellyn. For more information, head to yesyounow.today forward slash podcast.